Good morning once again. Thank you all for being here on this Memorial Day weekend. It is uh, the hardest Sunday of the year to make it out to church because there's so much else to do, and it's really beautiful. So we are grateful that you are here this morning as we are walking through the Book of Romans, as we are also celebrating the presence of the Holy Spirit moving our church forward in the mission of making Jesus known and bringing love and life into our world. Uh, this is my first time preaching in over three weeks, so I think I still hopefully remember how to do it. I am grateful for uh, the women who led our church over the last three weeks, for Rachel as she brought the word through Romans 3 and talked about none being righteous, and that, that's not a, uh, a depressing or um, unempowering thing, but it is an empowering thing that in our unrighteousness, Christ loves us and cares for us. As Elizabeth shared two weeks ago on Romans 4, to have the faith of Abraham, to trust and know what God is doing even when we cannot see it or touch it or realize it in that moment of our life. And then last week, as my good friend Shana brought the word through the beginning of Romans 5 and encouraged us that it is Christ that justifies us, not our faith itself. Remembering as we're walking through Romans this summer, at the heart of Romans is that it is not just a theological tome, but that it is a real letter written to real people living in the real world with Paul sharing really challenging corrections to the Roman community. It is a living document written to real people in real circumstances, working out just normal human problems. And in that, Paul writes maybe the most significant theological work of all time in order to solve division inside of a Roman church between what he calls the weak and the strong. The weak being the Jewish Christians who were smaller but had the history on their side, and the strong being the Gentile Christians in Rome who were newer to the faith but had much larger numbers in the Roman church. He's writing to reconcile them together, and in doing so, he draws all of it to the cross, to the resurrection, to the presence and power of Christ Jesus as the great unifier and driver forward. We are going to be looking at Romans chapter 5 this morning. We're just going to dive right in. Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21 will be our passage this morning. We're going to begin in verses 12 through 17. Romans chapter 5. You have Bibles under about half of your seats if you want to read along with me. Um, I'm going to be reading up here. It'll be on the screen behind me. Uh, you can also open it up in your phones. As the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Rome, Continuing in our study, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way death came to all people because all sinned. To be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who is a pattern of the one to come. But the gift is not like the trespass, for if the many died by the trespass of one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by that grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to many. Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that man, 
How much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through that one man, Jesus Christ? If you're new to the study of Romans, sometimes it can feel a little bit like we're reading a passage from Dr. Seuss, right? Paul's writing some deep theological, uh, ancient rhetoric for understanding theology, and sometimes when we read it, it's like, what is What's Paul talking about? Adam and one man and one man and righteousness and Jesus and Adam and looping back around again. And it seems like he says the same thing five times in multiple different ways. We're going to walk it through today and understand what Paul is saying. If you're new to it, welcome to studying theology through the letter to the Romans. It's just how Paul writes. Let's begin with what is sin. He's talking about sin and sin entering the world. What is sin? Is sin breaking a commandment? What are the commandments? How do we know if we're breaking them? How do I know if I've broken the law, if the law isn't even shared with me yet? As we read Paul's letter to the Romans, the idea of sin, the consequences of sin, and Christ saving us from those consequences reigns over the whole letter. And if we don't understand the brokenness of humanity to begin with, the letter can feel unnecessary, judgmental, cruel, without an awareness of our brokenness, the cross, as Paul presents it, becomes unnecessary and cruel if we don't realize the depth of human brokenness, if we don't understand the loss that we live in. We tend to downplay sin. We tend to play it down. I'm a pretty good person, I think my friends are pretty good people, and maybe we've messed up a little bit, but certainly we haven't destroyed anything, and if there is a hell, there's maybe only two people in it, Hitler and my neighbor, and maybe that's it, and everybody else is pretty good. The rest of us are good, and we're on the right track. Our hearts are in the right place. And Paul's talking about sin as breaking commandments, or Living outside of God's will, or as Tim Keller, the late Tim Keller says, it is finding our identity in anything or person outside of God's will for our life. When Paul's writing this, he's writing in the context, he was a Pharisee, he understands that there were about 600 commandments you had to follow. So it's pretty easy to fail in some of those 600 commandments. Pretty easy, I can't even maybe remember 600 rules, so it's easy that I'm going to fail in probably some of them. Okay, so I haven't lived up to it. But you can think back to Exodus 20, and Moses brings down 10 commandments. Not not 600, 10. And as he brings down 10 commandments, they are already violating, they're in the process of disobeying half of those 10 as he brings those 10 to them. Famously, he smashes them on the ground, and then he grinds them up into dust, puts it into the water, makes them drink soiled water, and it's it's a wild story, but there's only 10, and at the beginning of it, they can't even keep obedient to half. In this passage, Paul brings up the story and the example of Adam. Adam had one rule, one command, not 600, not 10. He had one rule, and he couldn't obey that. He couldn't follow one rule. So what Paul's laying out is it doesn't matter how many rules there are. It's in our very nature as human beings made from the dust of the ground. There's something in us that's selfish, that's prideful, 
that's rebellious, that wants to make the world in our own image and live as if all of it is about us and me and I have control. In verse 14, he even goes as far as to say, nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command as did Adam, who is a pattern of the one to come. Not even about breaking commands, but about living in a way that brings death into this world. Before the commands even came, there is death in the world. There is violence. There is murder. There is loss. There is a lion jumping and eating a gazelle. There is death in the world already. He says Christ came to overcome that death. Now, as we read this passage, a little bit of an aside that we're going to build on. When you read here seven times... Paul talks about Adam in a lens that really sounds like Paul's talking about a historic Adam. In our modern view of how we read Scripture, and maybe you went to college and took one Bible literature class, there's a struggle over historic Adam. Was Adam a real person who lived and worked? Is it necessary for me to believe in a literal human historic Adam in order to cling to the gospel, in order to know and to follow Jesus? I'll say two things and won't belabor it, but one, Paul writes as if there's an assumption that there was a human Adam. He writes with a historic Adam in perspective. He's also working and living out of that culture in a people group and a culture that talks like this, writes like this, communicates theology this way. And additionally, if you're unaware, the Hebrew word for Adam, Adam, literally translates to humanity. Adam is humanity. And so when you read it, you're not just reading a proper name of Adam, you're reading about humanity and humanity's failure at the same time. He says Adam is a pattern of the one who is to come. What does that mean? He is a pattern of the one to come in all of us, in humanity. He is the pattern we live in. His flaws are our flaws. His problems are our problems. His death is our death. We live in the pattern of the one who came before us, Adam. But it also means Adam is a pattern of another to come in Christ Jesus. And where Adam is a way to represent all of humanity, Christ Jesus comes as a new way to represent all of humanity. Famously, Paul coins the concept of new humanity. There is humanity in Adam, in that we're all made from the dust of the ground. We're human, we're flawed, we're selfish. But there's also now the new humanity in Christ Jesus, who remakes us into a new way to be human, that is not selfish but selfless, that is not violent but is gracious and merciful, that does not die and stay in the grave but has eternal life. Throughout today's passage, Paul is asking us, whose humanity do you choose? Do you choose to live in the pattern of Adam or in the pattern of Christ? The humanity of Adam is one who lives on their own strength, struggles through life, and dies in eternal death. It's the pattern of Adam. The pattern of Christ is one who lives a life of submission and trust to the Father, lives a life of love, conquering death, and reigns eternally. Another way of saying it, Adam, old way, Selfish way, sinful way, way of death. Jesus, the new way, the better way, the way of grace and mercy, and the way of life. Paul says it another way in a letter he writes to the Corinthian church. In 1 Corinthians 15, he says it like this. 
The scriptures tell us the first man, Adam, became a living person, but the last Adam, that is Christ, is a life-giving spirit. What comes first is the natural body, then the spiritual body comes later. Adam, the first man, was made from the dust of the earth, while Christ, the second man, came from heaven. Earthly people are like the earthly man, and heavenly people are like the heavenly man. Just as we now, like the earthly man, we will someday be like the heavenly man. Do we choose a simply physical life where we toil and fight for limited resources and fight to maybe pass on our own genetic code, or do we live in the pattern of one who gave their life away and trusted that there is more and there is eternity and it is dictated by loving sacrifice? And whether or not we view Adam as historical, what Paul is saying is that's not really the point. The point is that the life, death, and resurrection, the cross and the empty grave are the center point of human history now. Not the creation narrative, but the recreation narrative in Christ Jesus. That this is a new worldview by which we now see everything in the world as different. A historic Adam is not necessary to trust in Jesus. A full knowledge of Moses and the Exodus, not necessary to follow Jesus. A fully formed view of heaven and earth and eternity, not necessary to follow Jesus. A full understanding of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is for the Christian where it begins and where it ends. Do we believe that Jesus Christ lived a perfect, loving life, fully God and fully man? Do we believe that he took our own sin and brokenness onto himself on the cross? And do we believe that after three days he conquered the grave and is alive today? And now we view Adam. Now we view Moses. Now we view eternity in the future through the lens of the resurrection of Jesus. Look at it like this. Put this slide up here with the concentric circles. That we can now see the Bible this way. This is what Paul's saying. This is why he brings up Adam at this point of Romans 5. He says, you may read the Bible and you may kind of struggle through it, but, but here is how it works. He says, the resurrection is like reverberating concentric circles. That we see the life, death, and Jesus in the center and it radiates outward. It changes how we read. It changes now how I read the prophets. Spelled differently. It changes how we read the early church. It changes how I read the narratives in the Old Testament. How I read the poetry of the Old Testament. The creation narrative. The law. It changes all of these things. I now see them through the lens of the resurrection. And so I read the creation narrative of Adam, and I don't wrestle with how did God create the world. I now say, because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, how is this first creation not quite fully what God had planned yet until the resurrection of Jesus? In Adam, where do I see the flaws that Jesus Christ corrected? 
When I read the Exodus narrative and Moses and the Israelites, and I read the story of God being faithful to his people to bring freedom over slavery, I now see it through the lens of Jesus and that he brought freedom over the slavery of sin and death to all humanity. When I read the prophets and they cry out for someone to bring meaning to this broken world, they cry out for mercy from death and destruction. When they cry for justice over injustice and cruelty, I I now realize that there is one who fought for that, died for that, and one day will conquer all of it in Christ Jesus. Paul is saying, return back to your scriptures, read the Bible beginning to end, and begin with the center point of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. I don't just trust the Old Testament because the Jewish people passed it on and it's beautiful theological literature. I trust it because Jesus Christ lived and died and he built his ministry and his promise and his resurrection on the Old Testament texts. I don't think about one day life to come because I'm worried about what happens to me. I do it because Jesus Christ promised eternal life through him and in him. And then we go one step further Move to the next slide. When we talk about the reverberations of the concentric circles of the resurrection, we read the Bible that way, but I think Paul would tell us, don't just stop at the ancient scriptures, now bring the resurrection into your life. How does it change how you see your life? What it means to be a follower of Jesus is to have a fundamentally different worldview from the rest of humanity. My worldview is one based on hope, and life, and forgiveness, and generosity, and a very good God who created a very good world that has fallen through selfishness and sin, but has made a way through his own gracious life. And that one day, in the end, life, and love, and mercy, and justice will win. That's how I see everything from my spouse to my own self-worth, to my children, my doubts and regrets, my career, my childhood trauma, my community, the global suffering of this world, I see it all through a lens of hope in Christ Jesus. Paul brings up Adam, not to talk to us about creation, but to talk to us about how the resurrection changes how we view everything, including creation. Let's continue on. Romans chapter 5, verses 18 through 21. Paul now continues this argument. Adam versus Jesus. Old humanity versus new humanity. Death and physical life versus life and spiritual eternity. Now he really drives it home. Paul writes, Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. The law was brought in so that the trespass may increase. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace may reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Sin, law, grace, where Paul's driving us towards. When we talk about sin, sin is the brokenness in our world 
that we can feel but we can't always name. Whether you're a Christian or not, Paul writes this letter. Whether you're a Jewish person aware of the law or you're not, we all can distinctly feel that something is not completely right with this world. It's not, it's not working the way maybe it was supposed to. When I first met my wife, Kay, I met her family that uh, winter, and her aunt and uncle had been on a cruise to Alaska. And this also gives you a little bit of a taste of how old I am, is that they brought a slideshow to show us about their trip to Alaska. And it was literally one of those things where you have a tiny little slide that's just some colors, right? Tiny little slide of colors. And they put it in a machine. The machine is a circle. I'm talking mostly to people under 30. The machine is a circle, and you click through it, and it lights up each of the individual slides, and you see it. I feel bad about it, but as they showed the slides, it was a trip to Alaska, and literally it was like 50 pictures of an iceberg in a row. And I don't know if you've ever seen multiple slides of people taking pictures of icebergs. They all look the same. This is one, and like, they're like, there's a seal on that one. I'm like, great. They're like, this one is a little more blue. I'm like, okay. And eventually, after about 15 minutes, I was out cold. I was asleep in an intimate living room setting, and the rest of the family just watched their cruise. That's, that's how I got introduced to her aunt and uncle. I fell asleep on their slideshow about their cruise to Alaska. I still don't know how it ended. I think there's probably more icebergs involved. But the slide is just a little thing of color. And we can see the slide on our own and know that there's something there. For those of us that live life on earth, which is all of us, we know that there's something wrong in how we live. Maybe you're in your home and you have big windows and a bird flies and smacks into the window, dies and falls. We see that and something feels off about that. We live life and somebody we love betrays us and we know that it's wrong, but maybe we can't exactly articulate why that's wrong and why we feel the way we do about it. Or perhaps you watch The Bachelor and you know that humankind is deeply, deeply broken. And it's, it's a beautiful argument that they made and they've done a good job. Humans can be terrible. But we can't quite put our finger on how and why and how to fix it. This is what Paul said earlier. It's why he said, even before the law was there, people were still dying. It still was broken. And then he introduces the law. What does the law do? The law is like taking that little slide and shining light through it. So now, the little slide that we can't quite see is now blasted onto the wall, and I have a full picture of the depth of brokenness of humanity, of the depth of sin and failure. I can see all of it now. The law reveals the severity of human sin. That's what the law does. The law reveals how lost and how broken we are. It's like a light shining through the slide. And when you read the Old Testament, it's sort of like a light being shined through the sinful brokenness of man. You read the Old Testament, you read failure, selfishness, abuse, destructive indulgence, dehumanization. How many of you have read all the way through the Old Testament at some point in your life? All right, yeah, quite a few of us. When you read the Old Testament, you get about halfway through and it really starts to feel like a bummer, right? Genesis 
Okay, pretty cool Exodus story. You can power your way through the Pentateuch. And then it's normally somewhere around 1st and 2nd Kings. You're reading these histories of the Israelite people, and it just seems like one terrible king after another, making terrible decisions. And you get to kind of the end of 2nd Kings, and there's these horrible stories of Israel sacrificing children into fires, and then kingdoms come and they pen them in. And there's this horrible story of two moms arguing over whose baby it was, because they stole the baby in the night to eat the baby because they're starving to death. And you're like, oh my God, this is the Bible that God wrote to us. And then you finish 2 Kings and then you're like, oh, there's First and Second Chronicles. It's the same story again. I have to read it again. When you feel that way reading the Old Testament, I'm going to tell you, that's the right way to feel when reading the Old Testament. You're supposed to feel that way. You're supposed to feel that way, that humans can't do it. I'm seeing the depth of brokenness. It is not that the Israelite people, despite anti-Semitism, it is not that the Jewish people are worse people. It's that God picked this group of people to work his grace through, to reveal his law in, so that we can see how lost and broken and hurtful human beings can be. It's to reveal how broken we are, how in need of help we are, how in need of saving we are. But here's the problem with the law. It reveals it, but the law has no ability to solve it. The law just highlights it. It just shows how sinful and broken we are, but it can't stop it. The law draws attention to sin but has no power to stop it. It merely highlights and blows up and illustrates brokenness. It doesn't solve it. It's like the law is going like, hey, look at how bad things are. And then you say to the law, are you going to do anything about it? And the law goes, I don't know. I got nothing. It's just, I'm just, I'm just telling you how bad it is. I only have problems. I don't have solutions. And then we say, well, where can the possible solution come from? This is the whole point of the center chapters of the letter to the Romans. Is Paul saying, yes, Adam was broken. Adam was made, but Adam was made from the earth and God lived in him. But being flesh only, he couldn't do it. He had one rule, couldn't do it. And you read the rest of the law and you see how humanity, whether they cobbled together, whether they made kingdoms, whether they committed really hard, whether they sung really nice songs, whether they wrote beautiful psalms, whether they made big commitments and large pronunciations from mountaintops, could not do it. And he's saying, but there is one who can and did and always will to come be able to do it, and that's Christ Jesus. And you put him on, and his grace and his mercy not only conquers the law, but it fulfills the law. We have sin, we have the law, and now Paul says we have grace. And grace is the new law in Jesus that satisfies sin and brokenness. Grace satisfies it. If we keep the metaphor going, we have the slide of our sin. The law projects up onto it. We're just looking at a whole picture of the middle of the Old Testament projected up onto our wall. One piece of advice I was given when I was younger from, uh, I forget, an older friend said to me, when you travel on vacation and you take pictures of beautiful things, one tip is put somebody you care about in the photo. 
Because you're gonna take a picture of like, I don't know, you're traveling around Europe and you're like, ugh, another spectacular, beautiful cathedral. And you're taking pictures of all these churches and they're wonderful in the moment, but you come back 20 years and you're like, oh yeah, where was that church? What, what was that thing? You're up on a mountainside and you take a picture of a vista and in the moment it's beautiful and you look later and you're like, I don't really, what, where was I? So put someone you care about in and you're like, oh yeah, that's right. Yeah, Steve was here with me, and we were doing this journey. Oh, that's right, yeah, yeah, Kate and I were walking this, and there was that church. You put the person in the image, and it gives context to it. What Paul's saying is, the grace and the new law in Christ Jesus is like you're looking at that slide image of all the brokenness, but Jesus is in the front of that picture. And Jesus is standing there, and he's saying, hey, let me finish the rest of this picture for you. Let me put this now back into context. Let me finish the project that's going on here. All of this brokenness needs to be paid for. All of this brokenness needs to be finished, and the finishing of that is going to be painful, but I am capable of it in a way that Adam never was, in a way that humanity never was, in a way that the law never was. So let me finish the rest of this picture for you, and now when you look at it, you can see me front and center of it and know that I I'm taking care of it, and I will give grace and mercy to it. And that what God has accomplished in Jesus Christ is the driving force of everything. It's the driving force of every photo, of every slide, of every image. As Paul writes in verse 20, where sin increased... Grace increased all the more, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through the righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. If we now, through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, read the Bible, read the Old Testament, we read about the failure of man, the failure of a man, the failure of all men, all humanity. And we see our failures revealed. The Old Testament is like a mirror held up to each of us that we say like, oh, I wouldn't do that. Yes, we would. We look back in history and we judge the depth of sin of particular peoples and particular groups. And we say with my enlightened modern mind, I would never have done that. I would have been one of the reformers. Probably not because I live in the context now and I know me now. But I also know the one who in history, in context, was in the depth of sin and brokenness and did do the right thing and did conquer death and did bring himself to the cross. And as we read the Old Testament, we see our failures revealed and then we see Christ's triumph over that failure. And then we see in the rest of the New Testament, In Paul's writings, the triumph of Jesus graciously given to all of us now. Graciously given, and we just pick it up and believe it and put it on. That Paul says you can choose to merely be human and live on your own strength as a human, grasping in the dust of the earth, destined to die and be finished, or you can put on this new humanity that Christ offers to you. And he says, it's not even that hard. It's simply belief 
that it is possible. Belief that he lived. Belief that he cares about you. Belief that he is able and was able and still is able by reigning in heaven and providing his spirit to us. And if you believe that, then by his grace, you will be saved. And not just for eternity, but here and now, in the flesh now, you will live as a new human. And you will see all of life through this new lens. Some of you may be here this morning, and maybe it's your first Sunday, or you've been here for a little while, and maybe you haven't made that decision quite yet to live in that new life of Christ Jesus. And I just want to tell you, as we close out this morning, I'll give you a chance to pray a prayer of a first step of belief in Jesus Christ, of new life in Jesus, forgiveness of sin in Jesus, healing of brokenness in Jesus, and to put on that new humanity. But what I also want to challenge this morning is, for those of us who may be followers of Jesus already, that Paul's challenge is to continually put on the worldview of Christ Jesus, to see our world through the lens of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And I want to challenge you this morning, are there areas of your life that you're still seeing through the old way? Maybe you've put it back on again. You've gotten into a scarcity mentality of like, well, only a few of us can win, so I got a battle and I got to win. That is not the worldview of Christ Jesus. Or maybe, oh, I've been hurt, and I'm not going to be hurt again, so I'm going to hold this over them so I never get hurt again. That is not the worldview of Christ Jesus. Or you look around and say, well, I only have limited energies and limited love, so I'm not going to embrace these other relationships. I'm not going to make space for these people. That is not the worldview of Christ Jesus. This is our last Sunday with the boards up, because we said we'd have them up for the season of Pentecost, and today is Pentecost Sunday. As we close, I'll give you a chance to pray and respond. I will have our elders up here at the end. If you want to be prayed for, we would love to pray with you and walk this journey together, just as the first church did, to pray with you and trust that God is moving and working in you. If you want to write out a prayer, you can write it out, post it up on these walls. We'll try to record them as we take them down later this week. Um, and you can pray over other prayers that our church has offered over these last five weeks or so, pray over those prayers, pray over their lives as well. Pray that they are taking off the old way of being human, putting on the new way of humanity in Christ Jesus by the cross and by the empty grave. If you'll pray with me this morning. If you can stand with me all over the room if you are able. I want to give you a chance just to pray a prayer this morning. If you're already a follower of Jesus, use it as a moment to recommit or reconnect by saying these words. If you are not yet a follower of Jesus, just take this as an opportunity. Maybe Christ is calling you. Maybe God is calling you into relationship, calling you out of whatever is holding you, whatever is weighing on you, that Jesus Christ is saying, come and give me that over and I will give you eternal life. Pray with me this morning. Jesus, we thank you that you live. We thank you for the new humanity that exists in your resurrected body and that new humanity you promised to us by your spirit. Jesus, I believe that you lived. 
I believe that you were fully God and fully man living on this earth a perfect and righteous life. And that in your perfect righteousness, you took on our brokenness and sin onto the cross. You paid the penalty of sin in death and you died on that cross. You were buried in the ground for three days. And on the third day, you rose, resurrected, conquering sin and death. And that Jesus, you are calling us to follow in your example. Jesus, you gave your life for me. Today, in this moment, I commit my life to follow you, to know you, to live in that new humanity that you have created. May you save me, live in me, redeem me for all eternity. In the name of Jesus.